6.30 Chad Afternoons with Jalen Nye. Weekdays at 2 on 6.30 Chad. Right now, though, all eyes are on Ukraine these days as Russia continues to build up troops near that country's border but denies planning an invasion. Now the U.S. and Britain are pulling some diplomats and their families out of Ukraine, but Canada isn't following suit at this time. The prime minister saying today that several contingency plans are in place to protect Canadians as fears rise that Russia could launch an invasion. Now Trudeau says Canada is extremely concerned about the Russian aggression, but once again, today did not answer questions about Canada sending weapons to Ukraine or extending the Canadian training mission in the country. So what exactly is going on? What do you need to know? Let's find out with Dr. Christian Luprecht, a political science professor at the Royal Military College in Queen's University. Dr. Luprecht, welcome back to the show. Good afternoon. Christian, what is the origin of this Russian-Ukraine conflict? It dates back a long time now, doesn't it? Well, I suppose you can go far back in history and sort of the constant Russian paranoia of being invaded from the West. But really, the more recent, I think, uh, source of it is the fact that Putin has never been able to digest the fact that the Soviet Union collapsed. I mean, mm-hmm. he's, in 2005, he called the collapse of the Soviet Union the greatest geopolitical calamity of the last century. And so I think the uh, the inference to draw here is that for Putin, Europe is still sort of a, a playground to be parceled up and divided out between the Americans and uh, and the Russians. And this is why he's not negotiating with the Europeans. He's just negotiating with Washington, and he feels that you know, this is his sphere of influence, and it's right, uh, rightfully sort of Russia's. And so uh, he believes he can just turn states into vassal states, abrogate their sovereignty, and basically treat them like they need to report to Moscow, and he can just dominate them and completely ignore uh, people's right to self-determination uh, and the legitimate right to political participation, as he's demonstrated not just in his efforts to undermine Ukraine, and uh, but to undermine the independence of Georgia, Belarus, Moldova, uh, Kazakhstan, Armenia, um, you, may, you name it. Christian, you know, there's been a lot of talk uh, as well about um, Putin not wanting Ukraine to join NATO. Tell us why. Why would that be a concern for him? Why is he against that? Well, it's a bit puzzling because under NATO rules, you cannot join if you have disputed borders. Mm. So by mere virtue of the fact that uh, he in both Georgia and Ukraine has effectively created disputed borders by seizing and controlling territories, um, it means that those countries can join NATO regardless. Uh, Now, I suppose that you can say that joining NATO is a political process, uh, but uh, even if you look at sort of recent military and institutional reforms in Ukraine, Ukraine is decades away, if ever, Hmm. in a position to be able to join institutions such as the European Union or NATO. So I think the more immediate concern that's really at play here um, is a Russian president who's paranoid, um, (laughs) who believes for some, uh, somehow, some reason that uh, the Americans and NATO are out to get him, who believes in conspiracy theories, and who's basically sacked all his pragmatist advisors. The people who surround him are all yes-men. Um, they're all neo-nationalists, um, ultra-nationalists that basically buy into his agenda and that believe that force is the only way that you can get your way. And look, the way he treats his own population, mm. you can see that negotiating and being rational is not really uh, his way of doing things. It's uh, rather being a, towing, being a hardliner um, and using coercion and force to get what you want. So, Dr. Luprecht, you, you, you say that, you know, Russian president, you know, you, they have a 
president who is paranoid, who who believes force is the only way to get things done, uh, doesn't want to negotiate. So where does that lead other world leaders? Where does that lead U.S. President Joe Biden? Where does it lead other um, other um, world leaders when it comes to try to trying to resolve this or de-escalate it? Well, I think Putin is an opportunist. I think he sees at least three opportunities. One is he sees a Biden administration that is very weak and extremely vulnerable, especially on, on foreign policy. Mm. And so he believes he can extract concessions from Biden. He sees a new government in Germany, uh, that is to say the most arguably most important uh, country in continental Europe, social democrats that have traditionally been uh, fairly sympathetic to Russia and have always been built on rapport with uh, Russia, Russia going back to Willy Brandt in the 1960s. And he sees a Ukrainian presidency that has really squandered all its legitimacy, not just internationally, but domestically, that enjoys very little support. And so this is also why the international support coming to Ukraine is pretty half-hearted under the current circumstances. And so I think he, he looks at this and he sees uh, that his formula has worked well for him. If you look at Belarus, you look at Armenia, uh, you look at uh, Kazakhstan, just sort of how this has unfolded over the last year or so, I think he's thinking that uh, Ukraine is his for the picking. And I don't think there's going to be a major conflict. What he's banking on is a very short campaign that is essentially going to start with a counter-revolution in Kiev, where he's simply going to take his intelligence operatives that are all infused through Ukrainian institutions as is, um, and he's simply going to um, install his person in the presidency. And the UK, MI6, called it out. No surprise that the UK called it out because MI6 is the one major Western intelligence service that has never given up its Russia capacity, unlike, for instance, the CIA. So I think the Brits have a pretty good reading uh, on how this playbook is likely going to go. And by calling it out, I guess the hope is that uh, at least it won't be a surprise and that mm -hmm. we can hopefully um, – the only option for the West here is make it so painful for Putin to tr attempt this and make it uncertain whether he's going to succeed that he's not going to try because because if he tries and he fails, then I would have to think his own presidency is in serious danger. So how do we make it painful for him? Um, I think making it uncertain whether he's going to succeed in Ukraine. So leaving it um, uh, in doubt how much support we are prepared to provide, um, uh, trying to provide intelligence support, provide special operations support. Uh, the challenge is that the Ukrainian institutions are so ossified that the Ukrainian command and control structure in the military is so sclerotic after seven years years of effort mm. to try to reform the institution that really, in some ways, um, without blaming the victim here, Ukraine should have anticipated that this was, they were going to find themselves in this situation someday. And they could have taken, for instance, the Finlandization approach, which is to try to make it really painful for your adversary to uh, attempt to invade you. But uh, Ukraine instead insisted on idiosyncratic self-interest within those institutions. And so this is, I think, why there's a bit of half-heartedness on behalf of the West about how much support can we really provide for Ukraine uh, and, uh, and is Ukraine going to be able to stand up to this type of Russian aggression. Canada's role in all of this, uh, what is it, what does it look like moving forward here, Christian? 
Well, three countries that have to be the most outspoken are the ones uh, whose distance correlates the most from Moscow. That is to say, the UK, Canada, and the US, they all have bodies of water between themselves and continental Europe. Uh, Canada, in particular, does not have significant trade relations, for instance, with Russia. Um, and so in that regard, Canada has less to lose than, for instance, countries like Germany that have significant economic interests and, uh, and investments. And so it's particularly important that Canada stand up with a clear signal for deterrence. The problem is, of course, we don't have much to offer. <laughs> we don't even have a fighter jet that can defeat Russian air defenses. The only plane on the market is the F-35, which repeated governments have, of course, mm. squandered and, mm -hmm. uh, and refused to buy. So we need to ask ourselves, how reliable an ally are we? And this is really an insurance policy. So we have these tools at our disposal when we actually want them. Canada also needs to make sure that the conversation about the future of Europe is not a conversation between Washington and Moscow. And I'm very disappointed that the Canadian Prime Minister has not been more outspoken mm. with regards to the Biden's administration's approach to negotiating with Russia, that these bilateral negotiations are simply not on. Europe is Canada's second most important strategic partner after the United States. Anything that threatens the territorial integrity, the political stability, the prosperity or the harmony of Europe is a fundamental threat to Canada's interests. And so Canada has to redouble its efforts, both on the deterrent side and on making sure that uh, this does not become a conversation, bilateral conversation between the United States and Russia. Well, we'll continue to watch and see how this unfolds. Uh, Dr. Luprecht, always a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for making time for us this afternoon. My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Dr. Christian Luprecht, he's a professor of political science at uh, both the uh, RMC, Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University.